Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shri and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Shuyen, really excited to do this uh, weekly show about the latest and the future of Southeast Asia Tech. Could you introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, I'm Shian. I'm a GP at Hustle Fund, a pre-seed fund based between Singapore and San Francisco. And I'm excited to have an opportunity to share my unfiltered thoughts every week. Welcome yeah. all of you who are along for this ride with us. <laughs> Welcome to the dungeon where you cannot escape our rants and monologues. I mean, we obviously had some great guest interview and profile of you, and you also talked about VC Winter when nobody else was talking about it. So I think this is going to be great because now we finally get to catch up all the time, like those like dinners and coffees, and share them a little bit. I think maybe just at a high level, just to set things off, I think people are, like you said, new year, new start. What do you think about this transition between last year's VC Winter globally to I guess 2023, what do you think is the, the big thoughts, any resolutions you would make for Southeast Asia tech or what you Gosh. think is going to happen? I think 2023, we're going to continue to see a big reset. So I, I tell people 2023 is the year of the markdown. And my prediction is that there will be more layoffs. They might not be as well publicized. Coinbase just did another 20% cut globally. And I would expect similar things out of our local ecosystem as well, especially companies that raised a ton in 21 and early 22 with the expectation that they were going to grow a lot and they staffed up. We heard about some layoffs in Q4. It still doesn't feel like enough relative to how much hiring there was and the state of the economy. So that's, I think, one prediction. I think on the markdown side, Q4 is over. <laughs> so we'll start seeing people having to report to their LPs, to their boards, and starting to get real, basically. And I think the markdowns and the layoffs go hand in hand, right? With your runway evaluations and things like that. I think valuations will come down. As an early stage investor, this is great. I think this is a correction that was much needed. There'll be some reality. No more 20 million post caps on pre-product, pre-seed companies. And I've lost count of how many people have said, given the current economic environment, we will be focused on profitability and unit economics. That is like music to my ears. My favorite words, unit economics and cash flow, positive cash flow, please. So yeah, I think that's, I'm excited about 2023. I think it's going to be a great year. Lots of people are starting stuff. I think there's been a good sort of reality check. But yeah, there's still going to be some pain working its way through the ecosystem. How about you, Jeremy? What are your predictions? Well, similar to that, I would also say that startups are going to start dying, right? So a lot of them raised in 2020 and 2021. 
And then they made those cuts, right? In last year, because of VC winter, they started being more thoughtful about their burn. They tried to cut, maybe not enough. I think this year is a year where a lot of founders are just going to make a decision, right? They're just like, we can make it break even, but it's not growing or it's not working the way we want it to be. So either they're going to return capital to investors, thanks to us saying a winding down, or they're going to be forced to wind down, right? Because it's taught. <laughs> they go out fundraising, they think winter is over, or the investors, honestly, a lot of them are going to string them along. I've met a lot of founders who tell me very sunny perceptions of how investors are speaking to them about the process versus if I double click on it into what they're actually doing them, right? Or moving them through the process. I think there's a very big mismatch. Like you said, the reset hasn't really happened where it's like, Investors always say, oh, that's good. We are really interested. And you can be really, really interested until the company goes to zero. And I think that's a, I don't know, big shame, I think, where I feel like not enough investors are being frank about whether they're actually interested or not. And I think that's causing a lot of founders to really count on a fundraising process that may not happen. And so I think there's going to be a lot of like gliding departures in the next this year for winding down. But I think there's also a lot of people just running to a wall and being very disappointed this year as well. And I think these founders are going to enter, like you said, a tough job market, right? Where there's a lot of layoffs and there's a lot of less folks, a lot of folks on the market and not that many absorption as well. So I'm not sure it's going to be a tough time. Yeah, I mean... I agree, but also when people ask me about like my doomsday prophecy or whatever, I'm like, it's not clear to me how my doomsday prophecy helps you. Like, it doesn't change what you need to do. Like, you still need to raise the money, right? So like, even if I tell you some doomsday thing, does that actually change anything for you? No. So I think like, you got to do what you got to do. It, it doesn't change what you have to do. But I agree with you, right? Like, oh, I have a lot of soft commitments. I'm just looking for a lead. And it's like, well, it's not a real commitment until it's wired. Okay. Until it hits the bank account, not a real thing. And so really, we do try to encourage founders in our portfolio, like the moment someone says yes, send them the paperwork, sign and wire. Don't delay for any reason. Yeah, reality is a great thing. We should all endeavor to live in reality. Yeah, and I think I wouldn't be so bearish on why we're saying it. I think we're saying it because a lot of VCs are not saying it, right? I think it's just, there's not much time, right? And people have to make a decision up or down. Sell the company or sell harder to customers or stop talking to investors and focus on the business, right? Or cut people. I think people yeah. are very reluctant to cut. And I think as you saw with the Coinbase layoffs, in general, people cut too little the first time. And it's actually worse because from a morale perspective, having two successive layoffs is worse than having one big layoff. Because once you have the second one, then everyone's like, well, is there going to be a third one? I thought you said that was the last one, but clearly it wasn't. I had a founder run a layoff early this year, and he felt really bad about it, but he was decisive and has extended the runway on his business and I think put his business on a better footing. And I always tell people there's no such thing as a good layoff, like no one's happy about it, but there are a million bad layoffs. And so... If you were going to run one, I would just say, have compassion, be a human being, and don't try to hide the truth from people. I think that's like what's most exasperating if you're the one being laid off. Yeah, I think case example is I think like the better.com, right? The housing tech startup that did massive layoffs. 
And I think the two parts of it, right? I think the first part of it was the execution of it wasn't as strong as it needed to be. Like you said, right? You didn't have the compassion and the approach that we expect in a layoff. But also, I think one thing I do think about is like they were the very first startup to ever do layoffs at that scale, at that size, at that effective unicorn stage. And they got, you know, they were the first person to do layoffs. And so I think they stuck out and I think the media and everybody jumped on them. But now it's like they're layoffs every day, right? It's just so normal. Were they the first? I don't know. I mean, they did it over Zoom, which I think was like pretty terrible. And then... I think the CEO had his own issues, which did not make people particularly like, well disposed to painting it in a positive light, especially given how much money they'd raised. I think this is always the challenge, right? Which is like when things look great and when you've just raised around, the temptation is to go out and fill every open wreck. And people underestimate how long it takes to make new people productive. And generally their projections are too rosy about like, when, you know, you're going to get the benefit from all that additional spend you've just loaded onto your company. And so I don't know whether people will learn their lesson. I think the boom and the bust like continues. But I think for like repeat founders, you'll notice don't hire as many people. Uh, so I always tell people more people, more problems. You're supposed to be a software business. There's supposed to be operating leverage. You shouldn't have to like hire linearly with your growth. But yeah, I think people kind of get carried away sometimes. Yeah, I think there's a great point. And I think that's even worse in Southeast Asia because I think Brian Ma at Iterative put it nicely, which is the cost of labor is lower in Southeast Asia. And so companies that pound for pound, right, seed versus in the US versus seed in Southeast Asia and Series A in the US and Series A in Southeast Asia, like there's like 1.5 to two times more people because they're just hiring, right? And so you have these like, founders that are still early in their learning curve, their experience, and suddenly they're like having to learn how to be managers or managers of managers. And so I think this era is actually almost like 2x speed, actually, honestly, from a management perspective uh, in Southeast Asia. Yeah, Come on, so, Jeremy. Uh, give me something cheerful to talk about. Well, You're making me it, depressed. Uh, <laughs> I think the other thing that's the big news of the week, which unfortunately is not Less depressing, I guess, would be the passing of our creative founder, right? One of the first unicorns, effectively, of Southeast Asia, who invented... First Nasdaq IPO. Yeah, crazy. And that was like so many years ago. And I kind of actually remember buying creative sound blasters. Do you uh, really? That was like the thing. Yeah, I do. Because I was a gamer kid, right? And so it was the thing to get, right? Growing up in Singapore, that creative stuff everywhere. It's probably... I mean, I wonder how many of our sort of current batch of founders can remember that because he's sort of like our Steve Jobs. Well, they just won that $100 million settlement from Apple, right? Finally admitting that Apple infringed on their patents. So I think that is clear. He was a sort of technology visionary. He was before his time. But I love the story of him because he's so un-Singaporean in a way, right? He doesn't have any fancy degrees. He went to Pali. He was a tinkerer. He made things because he liked it. He enjoyed it. He was like a self-taught musician. He like loved and was like obsessed with audio. And he made it happen despite, if you think about the 80s and 90s, right? Like that was not a period of time where Singapore was encouraging people to be entrepreneurs or to do creative things. 
And I think he actually coined this term like the no U-turn syndrome in Singapore, which is like in other places you can make a U-turn unless they tell you cannot. And in Singapore, it's the reverse. You can only do a U-turn when they say it's okay. And that sort of like was a metaphor for how people operate, where they're just kind of like always looking for permission to do stuff. And I think he's not a guy who ever looked for permission. He just did the thing that was interesting and fun for him. And I think fortunately, he was able to build a business that turned all those things that were interesting to him into actual revenue, cash, all that good stuff. It's hard to like imagine like how little technology innovation activity there was in Singapore during that period. That was the period where Singapore was still producing like storage drives. Do you remember where we used to be the number one producer of storage drives? Like, obviously now our labor is way too expensive for that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we all owe a debt to him to putting Singapore on the map. For older listeners, you know, the little menu that came up when you booted up your computer and you had to, like, select your sound card. But yeah, it is sad. I think he's only, like, 67. And like pretty healthy guy at least so pretty friendly i think everyone who knew him was like he was just like a super nice genuine person and you can look up videos of him doing marketing of creative products and you totally feel the like dorky nerd energy i love it you know there's this one where he's like playing a keyboard that has been adapted to doing drum sounds and he just is like rocking out on it and it's awesome I need but, to find his video for sure. Yeah. I'll send it to you. You can put it in the show notes. <laughs> it's great. Someone showed it to me at a dinner party last week, and I was like, this is the best video ever. I so mean, I, I don't know. I feel like going back to it, which is like, I feel like I missed nerd founders instead of like all these like glossy, really good at sales. I think there's this like vision of the world, right? Like you said, like he's a Singapore poly guy. He co-founded with his classmate. And I don't know. He just was just really good at this one thing. And like you said, he's a dog, right? And I don't know, it just felt like there was like a gold rush over the past few years. Um, I don't know. It's, I don't know. Well, you need both, right? Right. You need to have the technology visionary and you need to pair it with like a strong kind of business and product team. And I think when you look at creative, they crushed it on the sound cards, right? That's what drove the IPO. And, but then... You kind of smirked when I said the Steve Jobs thing, but it it feels like it could have been so much more, right? Like they actually created that, what was it? It was like a Nomad jukebox or something. Like the first MP3 music yeah. player, right? That's first, the patents that- The Apple you know, clones, pretty much. Yeah, that uh, Apple infringed did on. Better. And they did it better. And they kind of, I mean, they've had an explosion of like SKUs, right? They did all this sort of like speakers, like headphones, like did all this like random stuff, but- I watched an interview of him from a couple of years ago and he said like his big learning was that he needed to focus more, that he was, he had all these ideas, he wanted to build all this stuff, but it was very distracting for his company. It was like hard to like sell all these things, whereas Apple's like really focused. I think he even made the reference. He's like, Apple just had one iPod they were selling and he had like multiple SKUs of his like jukebox thing that he was trying to sell. It was like very distracting. And so I think that's like, an interesting sort of like time thing too which is that he grew up in an era where there weren't a lot of people who had experience building public technology companies in singapore he didn't raise any money from silicon valley right and 
you could make the argument that he was a great CTO and maybe not a Steve great CEO. We're out in the Yeah. Ops. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. Uh, hey, I wasn't that, smirking. I was just saying, <laughs> I feel like attack. Yeah, 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 well, I'm I, just I think, saying like an archetype wise is a little bit closer to that. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And so I think the idea that the founders have that initial spark, right? That momentum to drive things forward. But as businesses grow, you actually need to bring more different skill sets and types of archetypes to your team to help you and to push back on you, to tell you like, hey, this is fun, but no one's going to buy this thing. Or this is fun, but we don't have the sales team or the channels to sell this thing. I think that's actually an important role for investors and other sort of executive team members to play. Like you just can't have your founder do whatever they want all the time because they might not see all the different aspects of the decision. So yeah, I think that's like a reflection I think on it, which is like, I think he did awesome. I mean, he clearly crushed it, but you kind of also think about like, well, what more could that have been given their early lead sort of in audio and in technology? I mean, it's like, the early 90s. None of this stuff had really come out yet. Yeah. They had an IPO. They were NASDAQ. They had hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. In fact, I think over like what, almost 2 billion of revenue. I mean, and they lost that lead. They could continue. Yeah. I think now that their market cap is a couple hundred mil, they could have been one bill, 10 bill. I don't know. It could have been like... Well, they missed the shift, right? Which is like you go from the gamer nerds who love to customize to like more of your average consumer who wants everything integrated and like doesn't need amazing sound or can't tell the difference. So, uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's delisted from the NASDAQ, right? And now it's only on the Singapore exchange. I think that's interesting, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons there, right? I think about, it's just like such a prototypical founder story that's like universal across the world, Southeast Asia, Singapore, about, I don't know, just... I don't know, technology gives and it also takes away because of the shifts. Well, it moves fast, right? So whatever advantage you have, it doesn't stay forever, right? So you like to try to think about moats or whatever, but consumer behavior changes really fast. And so if you're not on top of that and, and not anticipating that, it can be really abrupt. But I was chatting with my mom this morning. She was at Vertex. Vertex was in the Series B of Creative. And she was telling me stories about doing diligence on the company before they did the investment. And she's like, oh, yeah, I went to Egghead Software. It's like a retail store that like sold software in boxes to chat with people who were buying stuff and like understanding like why they bought things and things like that. And it was fascinating because I didn't know any of this. I was pretty young at the time, but they company started in Singapore, had success locally, wanted to break into the U.S. market had been really challenging, wound up partnering with a U.S. sort of distribution. And they had challenges because no one knew what this product was. There wasn't any marketing on it. Nobody heard of this thing. And eventually the breakthrough was the market leader at that time was AdLib, like a Canadian sound card business. It was huge with gamers. And so they figured out like, okay, this is a segment that like really cares about sound and is like a little bit more open and willing to try something new. And so they adapted the product and marketed it as ad-lib compatible. And that was sort of like the little thing that got them that foothold. 
And then people got to experience the product and they're like, wow, this is great. And it took off from there. And I love this story because go-to-market is so important and narrowing customer segment. It's not like, hey, everyone who uses a computer, just down to the gamers is so important. And then finding that like behavioral thing, that thing they care about and trying to market and drive your message around that. I think a lot of people don't pay enough attention to that. They just think like, well, my thing is awesome. Best thing since sliced bread. Like, why isn't everyone buying it? It's like, no one knows about you. No one knows it's great. No one has any incentive to try it. Like, why would they buy this thing? And so, yeah, that was my little technology history tidbit from the morning. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how we're kind of recurring the same era slash learnings, right? From the 1980s to now the 2020s. And I think is this interesting because it reminds me actually of a parallel founder, Hen Tan, who was the founder and inventor of the USB thumb drive, like you said. So Singapore used to be the number one producer of thumb drives. And a Singaporean actually invented a thumb drive around Wait, the same time. Wait, really? Time. Yeah. I did Hen not Tan, know that. Yeah. I mean, he was just a guy. He heard about, you know, there were other people trying to make MP3 players. And he said, let's simplify the MP3 player and just make it just a thumb drive, right? So he did product simplification. This is way too bloated. Let's just do the thumb drive. And he invented it. And similar to creative, like, well, well, the big difference is that he, this guy, the thumb drive guy, Hen Tan, had lost control of the patents, right? So he registered in Singapore, but he didn't really register in the US or in China. And then China and Shenzhen just like ran with it, right? Because back then, China did not give any hoots about even if you had a patent anyway as well. Since the, And it was just a commodity, right? It's just about the cheapest thumb drive. They just ran with it. And like you said, Singapore was number one for a while, but after that, it became China, right? And it was just a crazy story where... Yeah, similar creative, haha, <laughs> creative, similar creative, comma, inventive slash R&D dynamic there, and then struggle to go to market. It's crazy story, Trek. Yeah. Well, I would also posit that something that we are not as good at or we don't emphasize as much as a society is storytelling, which is actually essential to branding and marketing. And if you're going to make a commodity product like a thumb drive, I do think that branding and marketing matters, right? Like why do Apple iPhones sell for so much more than the comparably equipped Android phone? It's the story that we tell about consumers who buy Apple. How do they visualize themselves? And that's I the feel attacked as an Apple premium. user. Hey, no. I mean, I'm an Apple user, right? But like you look at it, right? Like from a units and profitability, Apple is the most profitable manufacturer, right? Way more Android phones are sold, but the profit margin on those is like so much smaller. I do think like this ability to have some sort of narrative around the products you're building and to sell it is a key skill that we often undervalue as a market we need to be able to do more of. If we're going to run global businesses, no, it reminds me of this reviewer called NKBHD, and he did a tech review, basically like a blinded test of all smartphones, cameras, the f photos, and he took millions of votes that were totally blinded. And so he did AB, you know, da da da, da and basically turned out that all the best cameras were all, in terms of photo quality, were Android phones, right? The Pixel phones. And it's so funny because it's so far apart from how people think about who takes the best photos, right? It looks like people think it's iPhone, but it actually turns out to be Android Pixel by Google. Crazy. I think on a similar note about what Singapore 
<laughs> it's not good at it's not good at storytelling. But it seems there's an interesting story where some Singapore companies seem to be good at is this I don't know what's the word metrics reporting. So the story of Han Tan, unfortunately for Trek, is that he's now in jail. So he was. Oh no! What yeah. happened? He just inflated his revenues for years as a publicly listed company. He's in jail now, which is so sad. Uh, isn't that crazy? Oh God! Yeah, I know, right? I mean, yeah. Hey, kids, following on at home. Fraud is bad. Don't do it. <laughs> I don't know if it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of folks who got stuck, right? We have a Singaporean in FTX, right, called Constance Wang. And the problem with her is that she was trained in the National University of Singapore. She was trained as an accountant. So she's fully aware of all of the various legal requirements around disclosure, etc. And she rose to become COO of FTX. And I think at some point she must have known. I mean, when you start junior, you don't really know what's going on, right? But then she became COO. She was living in the Bahamas with them. And now she got to the point where she knew. And I don't know. She didn't report, right? So that's kind of sad there. Yeah. You're not going to talk about SPH, Jeremy? That's our biggest <laughs> recent fake reporting story. <laughs> It was just like, like, like side league pass. But let's talk about FTA, which was a month ago. Let's talk about track, which was like in jail, like half a year ago. SPH, you know, the facts are still, the issue is still under evolvement. What we do know is that there has been double counting of newspapers. Apparently, three folks have been, who have left the building. But we don't uh, know who they are. We don't know who they are. We don't know what else fired. They've been taken to task, apparently. Taken to task, hashtag taken to task. (laughs) Which is the nicest way of saying it. And I think the question now is like, is this negligence? But it doesn't look, I think the news seems to be like, it's more than negligence, right? It's potentially fraud, right? The big (laughs) word here, right? So I don't know. Well, I think the more egregious one was that they printed things and then destroyed it. Like, I mean, that's just freaking wasteful apart from the fraudulent part it's like you're saying the worst part about this is the trees that died (laughs) i mean kind of yeah yeah yeah. and i would imagine advertisers if they thought the reach on their ad was going to be x but it was actually 0.9 x i'd be a little pissed that i was paying for that um I think destructive of the public trust as well, which is that the Straits Times is seen at least as a reputable publisher and journalist. It's kind of weird that, you know, who watches the Watchmen in that sense, right? Who's watching the journalists in terms of their own stuff? Well, they haven't responded yet, right? Like, there hasn't been anything that Uh, they've... I think a lot of press statements, but it's also kind of like crisis management, right? It's like, like crisis management 101, right? Which is... Get in there, get ahead of it, say everything as fast as you can. Do it on a Friday. Are you channeling the Johnson & Johnson case, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> With the children's Tylenol issue? Yeah, you want, to, you want to talk about the children's Tylenol scenario so that folks know what that means? Well, there's a sort of famous case study where people were reporting that they, some of the children's Tylenol bottles had been tampered with and that they were poisoned. And this is a big sort of, of course, national uproar about like, is my stuff safe? Everyone, retailers, like start taking it off the shelves, all that kind of stuff. And so I guess it's a classic kind of case for business school students on like, what do you do in that scenario, right? Like, how do you handle both like 
your channel partners, the retailers, your end customer, the parents, restore the public trust, etc. Um, so, so you say the, we need more MBAs at <laughs> Singapore Press Holdings. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need an MBA to have common sense, but if they're an MBA, you should definitely remind them about this case study. Like they should have a mental model for it anyway. Yeah. I think the issue is that they were sitting on it for a while, right? That's the thing, right? Like the departure well, it was, was about- broken by like an Instagram account. That's the crazy <laughs> thing. There's this Instagram account called Wake Up Singapore. And I guess they were the ones who broke the story. Wait, who runs Wake Up Singapore? That sounds like a very- I have no like, idea. I, we need sounds to like find the kind them. of link I wouldn't refer, but if my mom told me, it's like, hey, there's a wake up sheeple on a- Singapore <laughs> account, I would be like, that's probably like a scab, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think we should bring that person onto the podcast, Jeremy. We should find Wake Up Singapore. Yeah. Um, How we could put them behind a screen and like change their voice so they can stay anonymous. Uh, continue That's so their old school. They have all these IG, Instagram filters these days that make you very pretty and very perfect looking. They look nothing like who you are. And it'll be just way more palatable. But I mean, like you said, yeah. it, it's crazy how long the time frame has been because I think the departure, which we know for sure was several weeks ago, which means that there was an internal process probably months before that. And so this has been under wraps for a while, which is quite material, right? And so I think, I don't know. It, I think there's going to be an interesting chronology that's going to be built up. Well, I hope that is hopefully built up, I guess, to understand what went wrong here and what went there. But I, I think actually one thing that, you know, you and I have always talked about in the past is like, to some extent, it's really about this fiddling with numbers thing is a, it's like a recurring thing in tech and startups, right? So it's not really a surprise as well to hear this is happening, but we want to talk a little bit more about metrics and what happens there. Well, I think conventionally people say, like, can't manage what you don't measure. And I think the flip side of that is if you measure the wrong things, you get wonky behavior. And I was trying to find the name of it. It was like Goodhart's Law or something. Like when a measure becomes like a goal, it ceases to be a good measure because everyone will try to game the system to do that. But then that's like not super helpful as well. So, I mean, I think everyone who has a job with KPIs might, you know, relate to this, right? Which is like, when you feel pressure to make a target, like, what do you do? Like, one is you can distort the system, right? Two is you can distort the data. Or three is you can improve the system. And depending on your context, these actions will be easier or harder. And so if you feel like you can't change the system and you're being held to a target, then yeah, you probably have an incentive to distort the data. And it is the fault or the responsibility of the people who set up that system to know that they were going to create that issue. And this is a case where just like, someone was like going to pay 10 bucks per pest hunted or something brought in. And what happened was actually people started breeding the pests and killing them, right? So it actually increased the pest population rather than decrease the pest population. I think it's one of these things where like incentives are such a powerful thing and I think people often don't consider them. And, you know, Jeremy, you cited two public company examples of like people who had fudged the numbers. I think this is like not uncommon on the private side either, right? People always say, what do investors want to see? And they try to aim themselves towards that. And so 
if you say you want top line growth, founders will deliver top line growth, right? And you're like, no, 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 actually, I want profitable top line growth. Actually, I want this. So I think you got to pick the right metrics to aim your company at, but you also need to think about the system that you've put in place for your team to achieve those and have checks and balances to understand, like, is this actually working? Like, is this the right number to aim at or not? And that's yeah. that takes discipline. That's a hard one. And I think it's compounded because I think Southeast Asia doesn't have really good accountants or really good checks and balances as a whole. And I When think- have accountants any, have ever found anything useful, Jeremy? Sorry, accountants. <laughs> they, <and the> <laughs> they always audit and say it's okay. Sign that you know the final report is okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, accountants are to make sure you follow accounting rules, but that's not necessarily the same thing as saying like you're doing, you're prioritizing the right things in your business. I think those are actually separate things. Yeah, well, I think it takes both of them, right? I think it takes, like you said, like good strategic understanding to be like this is what the core of the business really is. And there needs to be checks and balances with folks who actually want to find out when something is going wrong and have an incentive to say when it's going wrong. I mean, talking about public companies that had some level of fraud or scandal, I think High Flux is another example, right? Another Singapore champion that had issues around how they eventually obviously had struggles, but how they you know articulated and communicated the struggle. I don't know. It's, I guess, this, like you said, this is a very depressing episode all of a sudden. <laughs> News of the week, I guess. I think let's circle back a little bit, which is I think you started talking about it, right? There's an incentive, there's a system that creates an incentive, and that managers were supposed to know, right? And I think it goes back to it is like I think what we don't know yet is who knew what and when. And I think this is gonna be the magic question for Straits Times and Singapore Press Holding. But also like it's not clear to me who gained from this. Like, did we all think this was like an amazing growth business? I don't think so. And I don't know, 10% on the margin to advertisers, I don't think like makes a huge difference. But maybe they felt they couldn't fudge more because then people would be suspicious sooner. But yeah, it's pretty confusing in terms of what yeah. what the goal was here to the payoff. Well, I mean, the payoff is clear, right? Because like you said, it's not growth business, but Straits Times has been shrinking, actually, right, over the past few years due to, I don't know, the macro, As digital news, et cetera. traditional yeah. media has been, right? It's not, not yeah. dissimilar. Instead of like shrinking, like, I don't know, a couple percent, now you're shrinking like 10%. I think, I think you can see the incentive for the management team to be like, 2% shrinking is like, I don't know, you can hand wave and say it's okay. 10% is a harder thing to say, right? I think what's going to be interesting as well is who whistle blew on this thing. I think there's always the interesting story, right? Somebody, I think obviously, it entered the public trust, right? And ended up looking at the numbers and then you must have done the clean shop, internal review, new people. So somebody actually is a hero of this thing. Okay, this is a positive yeah. thing, Cheyenne. Yes, like we're going back yes. To some someone again. had a conscience. Someone's a hero. And was someone like, had a conscience. Hey, this is not correct. They heard it over dinner and then like, like a little rumor over, I don't know, takwe tiao and carrot cake. And they were like, oh, maybe the number's a bit fluffy. And you're like, they double clicked on it, they whatever. And then, I don't know, they reported. So we just, I don't know, someone's a hero, right? For finding out more. Definitely true. Know. So that's the thing, right? I wish there was a more, at least I'm looking forward to more news coming out. And hopefully we get to not just obviously know why it went wrong, the system and so forth. But also I think we should congratulate the people who found the problem, right? You better go reach out to Wake Up Singapore, Jeremy. <laughs> wake Up Singapore, indeed. So on that note, this is a wonderful way to wake up the morning and to wrap things up. I think the, we got to cover 
the hidden story behind creators founding, go to market, the iPod before the iPod, Singapore inventing thumb drive, FTX, Singaporean, financial fraud, <laughs> measuring the wrong things, straight Things times. you don't want to be famous for, Jeremy. Okay, and also 2023 predictions, which is, I don't know, what's the moral of the story, I guess, should wrap things up? We got to live in reality. The sooner we live in reality, the less painful it'll be. The more yeah. divergent you get from reality, when the return happens, then it's very sad. Yeah, so. I think this. Yeah, this is two thousand three, the year uplifting. of reality. <laughs> not but reality, reality, not yeah. mixed reality, the real reality, thing. the real thing, the real thing. Yeah. All right. Oh, thank you so much, Ian, and catch you all next week. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.